Welcome to the Better Future podcast series brought to you by Driven by Design Award Programs. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me is... Kirsten Mann. I'm Global VP of Product Experience for Oracle's Construction and Engineering Global Business Unit. This podcast series is a special series where we focus on design in the boardroom. It's a series of infill recordings and live panels with design giants from around the world, and we discuss how boards are leveraging design to accelerate economic outcomes. In other words, how is design being managed up, down, and across the organisation? In this episode, we have a chat with Debbie Millman from Design Matters and the mastermind behind SVA Masters of Branding program. We explore how the language of design and branding is creating a heightened focus on impact. Debbie, welcome. Hi, Mark. Good to see you again. It is fantastic to be here. This is like your epicenter, isn't it? Well, it's my happy place. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, this is where I really love being. It is a great place to think, work, engage with students, our faculty. So I want to dig in a little bit here because if we're talking about a master's, if I go think of a master's of business... That's normally what we thought was, you know, you came out, you had additional education to help you to understand how to go and work with the C-suite, how to go work with the board. Mm -hmm. So I'm expecting if we've got people who are doing a Masters of Branding, that the idea that they're now referring into the executive suite and that they're also helping boards to accelerate their economic outcomes using design... This is kind of the epicenter of where that new knowledge is coming from. One would hope so. I do believe now that the condition of branding reflects the condition of our culture and that in order to be able to have an effective conversation in the C-suite, you need to be able to have the vocabulary to talk about cultural anthropology, behavioral psychology, economics, as well as design. And those are just a few of the topics that we spend quite a lot of time on here, having the students engaged with faculty who are experts in those areas, and then begin to teach them the language of branding, of business, and of design. It's a a very unique course. Like, I actually haven't heard of many courses like this. Actually, it is a a really unique course. We were the first ever college to give a master's degree in branding right and it is the first and now one of a handful i mean there have been a number of other schools that have started branding programs um but they're very different than ours ours is multidisciplinary it is centered around participatory learning as branding is not a solo sport. It's very unusual, if, if at all, to find someone that is an expert in market research and statistics and marketing and so forth. And so because it is something that is a team sport, we do a lot of our work in teams, which really gives you a sense of how you will behave out in the world. I I always say that a microcosm of what happens here is really about what happens with the way you engage with people in the world. Completely, because it's not – I think people go into this thinking they're going to be the solo guru design expert and in reality the good ones – That never happens, ever. The good ones have to collaborate. They have to be able to negotiate. And that's a really hard skill for people to learn. And and it's something that you can't learn unless you're doing it. And so that is the team dynamics and – 
team psychology is something that we believe is critically important. Mm. Um, I tell people that when they graduate from this program, they not only learn everything that we've taught them, but they really, really understand what it means to work hard. So I'm, I'm really interested, particularly with the, you know, both of our backgrounds in design, pushing out to understand how branding, which is probably coming more from a human-centered perspective, is a really interesting pursuit. You know, my old, old world as a creative director was, I used to have to do things at people. And the difference I see that design has is that we're doing things for them. And so you're going to have brands which used to actually be purely that they were thrown at you, and now we're going to have brands which are doing something for you, which is reflective of the experience economy. I guess so. I mean, I, I see it a little bit differently. Um, I, I believe that branding is the manufacturing of meaning, and we create our meaning every day around everything. Um, brands aren't grown on trees and they're not um, they're not something that you plant in the ground and so we're in a constant state of constructing them and we've been constructing meaning as far back as we go as modern humans with consciousness and the first constructed meaning that we humans created was about 10,000 years ago with the construction of religious symbols to signify our belief in a higher power. Now, we could have that belief in this higher power without symbols, but we created symbols to telegraph our affiliation, to signify our beliefs. And that is exactly what we do when we wear a pair of Nike sneakers or we drive around in a Volkswagen or wear a pair of Levi's. We have been constructing meaning through symbols and images since the beginning of our consciousness, really, our modern consciousness. Um, what has changed over that 10,000 years is essentially who owns the creation of those symbols, who are the curators and the creators of those symbols. And humans were pretty much the owners of this construction, this ability, for most of the last 10,000 years, I would say in the last 500 or so, and really escalating in the last 200 or so, it became the purview of the corporation. So the corporation took over that mastery of manufacture and you started to see the advent of modern brands beginning really with the advent of the Trademarks Registration Act in 1876. And so then you were able to prove ownership of that manufactured mark via trademark and copyright. Um, it's only now in the last 10 years, if that, that we see the shift now back to the people. So if it was started with the people and the construction of marks to signify meaning in relation to what we believed about our purpose here or our place here or our beliefs about a higher power, then transferred to the corporation has now in many ways become democratized and transferred in many ways back to the people. It went from very top-down corporation owning the manufacturing, the marketing, the shipping, the supply chain, the shelving, etc., to the consumer, now more as a bottom-up consumer to the rest of the world. And that you begin to see with 
the um, AIDS ribbon, with Black Lives Matter, with Time's Up, with Me Too, the Pink Pussy Hat, I think is one of the most successful um, manufactured pieces of meaning in the last, I don't know, 50 years or so. <laughs> so I see it a little bit differently. I see it much, much more than just the experience economy in that in order to have an experience, I mean, well, who has the experience? The brands don't have the experience. People have the experience through brands, but people also make brands. And that's really that, that inflection point is the part that I'm super fascinated with. Kirsten and I have spoken many times before about the satisfaction equation, which was uh, first documented in Customer.com, Patricia Seibold's uh, publication. And what's interesting about that is that you begin to see uh, an, a role for people who are in branding, in uh, communications from expectation setting, and then the people who are involved with the experience delivery from a design perspective, working in concert. And I say, I've seen a lot of organisations that there's a war going on, that it's one or the other, not actually that they've got a, a role in concert to go do. And I think we're seeing more of that, which is uh, experienced design experts working out how to go make the best experience for the most productive outcome. But then we still have this great role that's needed for people who are able to communicate. What should that expectation be? And I think in the symbology that comes through from brands, they help us to un uh, get that meaning. And hopefully they're not over-pumping what the, what the likely outcome is going to be. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you over-pump, you're only as good as trial. Because once you over-pump and, ex and entice somebody to try you, if that doesn't meet their expectations, then they'll likely abandon you. I mean, consumers are very promiscuous <laughs> with their brands. <laughs> But then it can also have great loyalty. So, so with the course that you're doing here being focused in the branding space, how much of that participatory experimentation is done around prototyping and actually coming up with designed experiences, or are you focusing on the meaning and the communication part? Well, I see it as all one organic, holistic experience. Um, we do work with real clients in real time. So we have a number of projects that we work with and we have worked with over the years, uh, whether it be Kimberly Clark, whether it be Procter & Gamble, whether it be the Museum of Modern Art, Coastal Adventures, uh, Google, YouTube, Peloton. We work with real clients and deliver real work. Uh, we also do Blue Sky where the parameters of the project are only limited by your imagination and that's work that's self-generated, whether it be for an existing client or corporation or, or ourselves, where the students get to work on a project about me their own meaning. So I'm fascinated. You, you've what, had this here about five, six years, is no, it? No, actually, <laughs> we're finishing our ninth. We're graduating ninth? our ninth class. I, I didn't realize next it year been that it'll be our tenth anniversary. Oh wow! And we're working on a rebranding. So how do you rebrand a branding program? Uh, Get the kids uh, to do it. <laughs> no, no, we're not having the students do it. We're having Tosh Hall uh, of Jones Noel Ritchie. Uh, they're they're doing the rebranding for us, and we saw our first. Uh, we saw the first presentation on Friday, and they knocked it out of the park. There is a reason that they are in the zone and one of the most um, 
one of the most exciting and successful branding consultancies today. JKR is just killing it for us. So you've had so that's really interesting. Just stepping back, and you've had so nine years of students coming yes. through. So we have almost I, th- I think about over two hundred students. Fantastic. And yes. so, what has been the criteria for success for them, in the sense of so you've had these students go out? Um, can you kind of describe some of the roles they've typically taken on from here? Yes. And how have you seen their career trajectories during that time? Oh, it's so exciting to see. Um, we have students that are now running strategy in some of the biggest consultancies in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have people working at JKR. We have people working at Interbrand. We have people working at Futurebrand, at Profit, at Kimberly Clark, at Procter & Gamble, at Unilever. I mean, it's extraordinary what's happened. So we find that our students are going in really any one of four directions. Mm-hmm. First will be to work as a strategy consultant or in, or as a much more senior creative director in a branding consultancy. So we have students all over the world now working within consultancies, big, small, medium, etc. Then we have a whole contingent of students that go into the corporation mm-hmm. and either work as brand managers or as market research associates or planners or um, consultants. So there's a whole slew of students that go on the more corporate side. Then we have a group of students that are starting their own brands, whether they be fashion brands Mm -hmm. or design brands. I just saw one of our students on an HGTV show, which was incredibly surreal. It was kind of amazing. Um, And then we have a fourth group of students that start their own thing. So they start their own branding consultancy or their own partnership with other students. Um, and they're also really doing well. So it's been incredibly exciting to see the different directions that they're taking. There's also a very strong alumni network now because there's 200 plus of them. And so they have an event, a public event every year that they call Brandstand, where they interview practitioners and advocates and talk about the state of branding. And that's held in New York City at the School of Visual Arts Theater once Mm -hmm. a year. And then they have more localized events that are just for them to get together and gossip, I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say, you know, it, it's such a pleasure to be talking with somebody who's you know, got a decade of, you've started the project, it's evolved, it's just the smile on your face of hearing you talk about it. it, it it's very similar to how I feel when I talk about Driven by Design. Absolutely, absolutely. So there's like the, there's this amazing legacy that's coming out from uh, from the career that you've had. What's the next ten years for for the course here? You're, you're rebranding it. Does We're it go into it. a? Do you do you reinterpret this like a 2.0, or have you just been incrementally improving? I think we've been incrementally increasing and changing and evolving. We, it's a stuffed program. Any person coming into this program gets a master's degree in ten months. Now, for wow. our listeners in Australia, we need to remind them that stuffed probably means lots of content in it. Because oh. in Australia, that means it's actually broken. Oh, goodness, <laughs> no. No, it's jam-packed. It's jam-packed, it's exciting. Jam-packed. jam-packed. Okay, right. It's interesting what you said with the rebranding. Why did you think you needed to rebrand? Ten years is a good time, I yeah. think. Let's freshen it up. We also wanted to relook at our vi- our vision and our values and mm-hmm. our mission. And so we felt that it was time. And it's evolved a lot. I mean, we started – I was urged by the president of the college, David Rhodes, not to have five classes per week. We have. It's an evening program. It's geared 
geared towards working professionals. So the classes start at 6.30 and end at 9. He wanted me to do a program that was Monday through Thursday. I didn't see how it was possible to really be able to provide a, a really thorough <laughs> master's degree in that amount of, of class time. So I increased it to five days a week. But now they also have classes two Saturdays a month. They have workshops on the weekends frequently. There's an honors program, which is an extra class that people have to apply to take. That's also with a real world client. So we we you really pack it, in. pack it in. And you know, I tell people on at any given time in the program, as as hard as it might be or as tired as they are, that whatever time it is, even first day of class, that next year at this time you will have a master's degree. So, so they've just got to hold in there. They, they just have to hang in there for 10 and, a, ten, 10 and a half months. So thinking of this journey that you've taken, and Mark and I are talking to a lot of um, design giants, design leaders who've kind of been, you know, taken that entrepreneurial step with um, executive, with boards to convince them on the value of design. How did you convince the university on the I value of this program? I didn't. They came to me. They already knew what the value could so be. So how had they been educated around that? What were some of the, the triggers and the movement that made the university realise this was a program that was worth doing and pursuing? It's all because of Stephen Heller. Stephen Heller, the, the great design critic and thinker and art director, he's written, I think at this point, over 200 books about design and culture in 2007. He sent me an email that said, want to have lunch? And we had, we were regularly getting together a couple of times a year just to catch up. And over that meal, he asked me if I would be interested in starting a master's program in branding. He had been charged by David Rhodes after Steve left his uh, art director position at the New York Times. He'd been there, I think, 30 plus years. He had already started, say, 10 years before that. So in the 90s, he had started uh, a master's program here, the MFA in design program. After he left the New York Times, David Rhodes charged him with trying to create a number of more progressive master's programs in an effort to keep the school competitive. And so Steve started the interaction department, the design writing research and criticism department, products of design. He helped found all of those programs. And one of those programs was uh, the program in branding. Right. So I was the lucky recipient of his brilliance. And I think that's something that we're seeing mm -hmm. that... Uh, consistently, there's been somebody who's an agent for activation, mm -hmm. um, and that person's obviously got a lot of confidence by the more senior people, and they've said, I think this is a direction we should go in. So it comes down to that there's a proposition that then acquires the talent to go and create opportunities like this. And that seems to be more and more what we're finding mm -hmm. as we're talking about design in the boardroom. The origins is coming from one insightful visionary mm -hmm. who then actually plants a seed and amazing things happen from there. Yeah, and all four programs are still running and doing really well. And this school continues to evolve. I think there are over 20 different master's programs here at SVA. So if you think about your students and you mentioned that you're dealing with a number of large brands and um, so with the, with the students that you're talking to and how in the program are they kind of packaging that language around how they deal with executives and how they deal with the board 
with convincing them on the value of design. How do you kind of teach that? Well, the first thing you have to do is understand the language Mm -hmm. of the boardroom. And so we have one of our faculty, Brett Sanford Chung, teaches a class on the business of strategy and she makes them one of her assignments is every day they have to read the wall street journal because designers and creative people don't really speak the language of business and so that people go into boardrooms and trying to sell a branding project or try to sell an advertising campaign and they talk the language that they're comfortable speaking in What is the benefit of doing this? What is the return on the investment? These boards, these senior executives, these CEOs are giving agencies, designers, creative people money to do this particular thing. They want it to be effective. They want there to be a return on investment for that money spent that increases the value of whatever it is they're putting out in the world. Mm. And if you can't speak that language, you're never going to be able to get them to do something that you're interested in having them do and it's a really it's a fascinating point right because exactly as you said a lot of designers just simply aren't interested in that yeah and so how do you get them to realize that that you have to take this path you have to do that hard work around understanding that language and do you find that some just don't and they think this isn't what I got into Mm. I'm more creative I think that that happens more in the consultancy world the agency world that doesn't last very long. A person like that won't last very long in that environment. I think because the students that come here are willing to be taught, they trust the faculty. And in fact, Brett Sanford Chung is one of our top two most popular faculty. And she's been on the faculty since year two. So she's doing something that is certainly inspiring the students and opening their minds in a way that they might not have been opened before. So, in, and there's a comment that, that I often make when I'm talking in public about design in the boardroom. Design's in the boardroom. It just is you're not in the boardroom. And well, that's, you know, and this, that's is what I always say, this is what I always say to people that want this proverbial seat at the table. I'm going to get to the it, seat at the like, table. Okay, inner eye roll. <laughs> inner eye roll. But what, so, yeah, you want a seat at the table. What happens when you're sitting at the table? What are you going to say? How are you going to communicate? I often say that, that common vocabulary does not equate with common behavior. That we have the same words for things, but they don't mean the same things Mm -hmm. to everybody. In preparation for these in-field recordings that we're doing, there was a standard set of questions. And there's a term that I use, which is about accelerating economic outcomes. And Kirsten looked at it immediately and she's like, do you think designers will understand that? Was the, was the eyebrow... Well, it was also... Sometimes I think people use language unnecessarily as well. So it's how do you get the simplest common language to get your meaning across as yeah, well? Yeah, yeah. I you mean, know. I loathe marketing bingo. And and you know what marketing bingo is, right? You sit in a, in a room and you sort of check off every time you hear strategy, integrated, blah, blah, blah. Synergy. Synergy, yeah. <laughs> Velocity. Yeah. And so what's, in, what's interesting there is that if, I, if I'm talking to board members and I, just, I use the word design, they kind of glaze over. If I talk about experience economy, they glaze over. If I talk about accelerated economic outcomes, 
I've got their attention. It's like I've just given them a hit of some drug. <laughs> they want that. And then the other one is that I'll often talk about, do you want to use the most proven reliable method to create an outcome? And I've got their attention again. You say, oh, that's called design. It's a proven reliable method. And all of a sudden I said, I didn't realise. I thought it was about style. Mm. So it's, it, language is such an important, in, such an important interface. And I think what we do need to understand is that there's different cultures and different conversations. And if we want to make sure that all of those human-centered benefits that come through from design are going to go all the way through the boardroom, it has to go through various linguistic changes on that journey because it's unlikely somebody who's actually working in the craft of design is going to understand the same language as somebody who's working in the strategy or the person who's actually working on the overall corporate strategy and economic outcomes for shareholders. Right, and, and those that outcome is indeed a journey. I often say that branding is the result of a journey, and the journey that you take is actually positioning. And then once you do that sound strategic positioning, you your result then becomes a brand if you're successful. And how are they, so how do your board measure the program? Like what's the success from this program? Is it the number of students that you're getting? Is it, how are they measuring success for you guys? Are they getting better jobs, making good money, doing mm-hmm. good work? And so is the board looking to where the students are great? What yes. measures do that they actually That is evaluated take from every you? year, right. every so single year. When you're packaging up, this is what we've achieved from the course every year, what's the key things that you have to kind of show them every year? I have to write a report every year, so that's a good question. I have to talk about the curriculum. I have to talk about the quality of the work. I have to talk about the client projects. I have to talk about their personal projects. I have to talk about where they're getting jobs and so forth. So very quantifiable, statistically significant evidence. Right. It's not anecdotal. Yeah, and there's the important thing that there's actually evidence and some of that evidence turns into dollars and people can then see the numbers, and if they're just a numbers person, they're going to understand that. People who understand more of the depth of what it means to build curriculum, to go actually get experience with people, they'll understand those values. But without having that balance there, you probably wouldn't be able to keep the course going. So you're obviously succeeding in a huge way. Well, I'd like to think so. I mean, part of what I also view as success are the letters that I get from students Mm. and the notes that I get and whether it be grad or undergrad. And I would say, and I'm not exaggerating, but not a week goes by that I don't hear from one of my several hundred grad students or even more, because I've been teaching almost twice as long undergrad, about the impact that the classes have had on their lives. And I now have boxes of letters and notes that I get because most of them come in the mail. They're mostly not emails and I treasure them. And that to me is evidence of being able to impact a person's life in a really positive and meaningful way. So you've had a credible career like into and considered a design giant. Was there a moment when you realized that you were going to be, have a career in design or is it something that just gradually evolved? Well, I tried to have a career in non-branding design. The first 10 years of my career were pursuit, and I had really marginal, if any, success. Um, I fell into branding through a cold call from a headhunter, 
and suddenly for the first time in my career was professionally good at something. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to come from some sort of magic ether out there. I really credit all of the time I spent in my dad's pharmacy growing up and working for him on the weekends as I was older uh, with giving me that sort of nascent knowledge about why people buy the things that they do. But the, it did seem almost to be sort of in inborn talent. Mm. Um, and that's that's interesting. Normally people have something that if it, that was impacted in their childhood that then led yes. to it. So it just in terms of what you were doing in the pharmacy, was it seeing what people would buy and why? And I think so. And it was shelving and, and making signs for the different products that he had. And when I was very little, looking at everything, look, thinking the Brett's would make me prettier, the <laughs> skin cream would make my skin shine or whatever, you know, silly things. But it was that projection into how they could make me better than I was that was, I think, so captivating to me then and still really fascinating to me now. What, what also interests me here is that this isn't the only time that a headhunter or somebody who's scouting has mm -hmm. called you. Yeah. I remember you telling a story about the design uh, matters. Uh, about design matters. <laughs> You've also had Stevens done the same thing uh, to get you in here. So there's there's a role of the activator to actually know who's in the market and who's doing something that may go to that next step. And I think we often forget that that talent search, acquiring people, helping them to go beyond where they're comfortable or where they currently are, can actually unlock huge potential. And that's such an important role if we're thinking about how our organisations getting more qualified design executives. They've got to start from somewhere. We need people who make that brave leap to say, I think you could be the person. And you've experienced that multiple times multiple in your career. Times. And I suppose others look to you for inspiration. Who do you look to to inspire you and keep you kind of going? Um, my niece and nephew. Mm -hmm. um, Jackson is 11 and Rebecca is 8 and they give me a tremendous amount of inspiration um, my my friends my, my the rest of my family my partner I mean there's so many people and what leaders have inspired you on your journey too like which leaders do you look up to Gloria Steinem Steve Heller as we've mentioned uh, Edie Windsor and what are the traits from those people that you think you kind of are drawn to a belief in their own beliefs that's such a powerful thing. If, you, if you've got people around you who will actually help you to have the courage to go to that next yeah. step. And courage is, is something that actually bind, binds the, uh, Debbie and myself together. We're both great proponents of it. Because when you've got courage present, it's inspiring and it's the type of thing that actually is a very rare you know, element in our life. And so when people are in present with you and you may only know them through a cursory role by listening to their podcast or you may have read about them, you may have first-hand experience. But that courage moment actually inspires so many people to realise that they also can go there. And I, I often cringe if, if I'm ever asked the question of who inspires me. Mm. I go, oh, gosh. <laughs> Sometimes I wish I had a much higher belief system and I could say, you know, a deity was who inspired me because it's, it's a really hard thing. Mm. It is because it also depends on the day. Yeah. yeah, it does. And so how do people find follow you, Deb? What's, what's the best way to keep across what you're doing? Uh, well, on all social media, I'm at Debbie Millman and my website is debbiemillman.com. 
And you do a podcast as I well? I do a podcast called Design Matters, which you can also find on my website. You can also connect all the other things that I do, whether it be my work here at the School of Visual Arts, the podcast, my writing, my illustration, my books, my speaking, and so forth. Debbie, it's been absolutely fantastic to spend half an hour with you. Thank we you. thought it was going to be a little bit shorter than that, but you've given us such gold. Thank and you. we are so grateful for your time. Well, thank you. And thank you for everything you do and bring into the world, Mark. Thank you. It's absolutely a pleasure to be in your company. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you Kirsten. Kirsten. Thank you.